Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Is it a good representation of the best examples of its type? Can you compare it to the best examples of its type and use a scale to rank that? That's really the essence of our methodology. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining me this week is Gerald O'Kinnard, director of the Beverage Testing Institute in Chicago. BTI's independent reviews of beer, wine, and spirits are highly influential internally within the BevAlk industry and with consumers. Pappy Van Winkle received a considerable boost to its brand recognition in 1997 when BTI awarded it a 99 out of 100, the highest awarded score at that time. In an era where social media and democratized ratings platforms influence portfolio decisions for makers, wholesalers, and retailers, the work that BTI does carries significant weight. Gerald and I dive into what makes a good sensory or review panel and how evolving style categories are accounted for in these contexts. How are pleasant off flavors assessed in an objective environment? BTI's approach of taking the perspective of an end user leads us to the topic of convergence between ready to drink and flavored malt beverage canned cocktails. Let's dive and get heavy. Gerald O'Kennard, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Nice to be here, Alexi. Thank you. So you've been with Beverage Testing Institute for, I think, 22 years now, and you're University of Chicago graduate. Before getting into what BTI does and some of the topics, how did you find yourself in this world of sort of tasting and beverage assessment? Well, I came from the hospitality world, so I ran a catering company. Um, I was front of house and running the bars and the, the, the front of house staff for events. And we did a lot of big events. We did uh, cultural events over at the uh, at, uh, Field Museum and uh, the Lyric Opera. In the course of doing that, I got exposed to fine wines and I had to learn pretty quick uh, with our clientele, you know, in terms of uh, the wines that they were drinking and, and what was going on in the world of wine. So as a course of that, um, one of my colleagues at the time was a sommelier, and uh, he actually left the catering company and went to work at BTI in the early 90s. He became their, uh, one of their head writers and editors and the taster. And, uh, you know, I maintained contact with him and throughout the 90s and uh, started tasting on panels and learning a little bit more about how to formally assess products. And uh, in uh, the late 90s, I had a child and realized that uh, my wife and I realized that we needed to get out of the hospitality industry pronto uh, because 80 hours a week was not going to cut it <laughs> as far as raising a child. So as it turned out, Beverage Testing Institute had just uh, got a, a, a new uh, round of investors and ownership at the time, and they were expanding to form a um, publication, a wine publication predominantly, but also featuring beers and spirits. And so they hired uh, first my wife and then me a couple of years later, uh, full-time in 2000. So I've been here ever since there. Oh, that's incredible. Quite a family venture there. Going from hospitality and into a more professional setting that involves tasting, sensory, and analysis, what were like some of the big things that you learned in that jump? 
Well, I think what it was, was looking at it from um, looking at things, not just from my perspective, but from the perspective of the end user. Uh, and that that's really kind of a, one of the first dividing lines in becoming a, a professional uh, taste tester or sensory expert is to really use your, your tools and your, your, your skills and muscles, memory and physical to, to really uh, focus on the task of what, what will the end user enjoy and what will they get out of the experience with the beverage. So taking, um, you know, kind of retooling your skill set to that purpose uh, it takes a little while. It takes a little while for our panelists to this day, and we always have them audit for a few sessions before their scores actually count. So they can they can get a handle on our methodology, which is unique, um, and also some of these more philosophical and method you know methodology kind of tangents that that we explore when we when we do our work. So it's um, it, it that was the big one. After that, I think it was um, you know you sort of go through phases as a uh, taster and a critic. Uh, there's the Russian judge kind of phase that you really want to, you know, make your mark as being very tough and grueling. And there's so many um, people that start out with that, particularly beer, beer tasters, we find that come from a very technical, um, like it's technically not correct, therefore it is bad um, kind of perspective with regards to flaws and styles. Um, so kind of learning to, to appropriately balance that, that level of, of criticism that's, that's, that's technical with a criticism that I actually kind of learned from Michael Jackson, where he was one of our panelists, and I would taste with him on panels um, in the 90s. And uh, his perspective was always interesting to me. He was always looking for the good in, in, in something. He wasn't looking for the flaws and the bad. And as a, as a writer and a publisher, that, that really speaks to me, because your audience really wants to find the good stuff. I mean, we don't hammer away at the bad stuff publicly. We kind of give those producers the messages that um, that we're finding and the, the feedback that we're finding uh, through more private channels, so they can you know, hopefully improve their products if there are issues that we find. But but we're really and I'm really focused on like, okay, what what's going to be interesting to share with an audience? Our audience that's looking for either you know interesting new flavors or value or you know what have you, whatever the criteria might be. So that's a long way of answering that, but I, I think that's those are the two main things that that I learned right away, and that kind of guided me in, in my work here. That's very interesting, and I definitely want to get to sort of the beer judging and also kind of how standards change over time. Too, I think it's a common thought that the styles change over time, BJCP guidelines change, and it's not historically unprecedented for a style to change. If you ask Martin Cornell or even Michael Jackson, right? But sticking with the methodology, just to flesh some of this out a little bit more, what you're talking about is a highly professional environment. Environment, not taking things to a bar and having some drunk people drink it. So tell me like a little bit about what goes into building a methodology for like a tasting panel and for the work that you were describing. I think the first thing is, um, is actually one of the biggest challenges for, for a lot of uh, folks. Uh, I, I go to different uh, sensory labs and I go to different quality control uh, areas in different uh, production facilities. And, and space is really one of the key things to find a space that that is um, free of distraction, free of aromas and, and noises and, and other things that has has good lighting that that replicates a natural uh, you know sunlight spectrum, let's say, 
Um, all of these kind of details in the space I, I find because I've tasted different competitions that are run in different banquet halls and hotels and auditoriums and so forth. And there's always external factors that are frustrating the panels at these places. I remember one time I was in the Caribbean judging rums and they just painted the whole place. I mean, it was impossible. You couldn't, you could smell anything but paint. I mean, it's just absurd. And we're supposed to judge these, these rums. It really wasn't fair to them. So that that's first of all is to have that kind of neutral level playing field to spatially. Second, I think it's really incumbent to have a methodology that is sensible. You know, we, we're members of the American Society of Testing Materials and so we use um, the, those standards are sort of meshed in with our methodology. We're, we're in conformity with their standards so that, you know, if we're doing something in the, in the tasting lab, it's using our methodology or it's using triangle tests. Or it's using difference testing that, that's pretty bit, you know, the methodology and statistics have been worked out for years. And it's really that's the basis of, of what we do is, is that. And I think the third component is a small cadre of people who are well-trained in, you know, professional evaluations, who understand benchmarks, who understand uh, the idea of, you know, kind of stepping outside of yourself critically and looking at something not, do I like this? Is it, uh, you know, do I find it pleasurable to myself? But is it a good representation of the best examples of its type? Is it, can you compare it to the best examples of its type and use a scale to to rank that. Um, that's really the essence of our methodology is that um, it's not a personal assessment. It is objective in the sense that you're using benchmark criteria and you're, you're tapping into your experiences of what are the best examples of the kind to kind of inform your judgment and your decision about a given product. And thirdly, also just the or fourth, I should say the other thing is you know, what, what is the objective? You know, like, are you um, trying to provide trade feedback to a producer? Are you trying to provide uh, insights to consumers to, to inform their buying decision? Like who's, what's the output of this thing? Or is it just purely marketing or you're generating uh, awards and accolades for people to use in, in their uh, endeavors in the business world? And those are all equally valid, you know, end case uses and, and uh, you know, they each have their different implications for what kind of questions you're going to ask of a of a reviewer or a group of reviewers. In 1997, a certain spirit, Pappy Van Winkle, received a great deal of attention, getting a 99 out of 100 from BTI. And I'm assuming BTI got some attention for that too. That really put that brand in the spotlight. And so I'm just kind of thinking that's also a time that I think quite a bit of how products were judged by certain standards. And things are a little bit different from the public spotlight now in some respect. I think there's much more like democratization in some respect of ratings or how people think of them, which is like super complicated, <laughs> but we're not going to solve anything necessarily today. But it feels almost like a different world in some respects. Can you sort of shed a little bit into that particular time and maybe also how you feel as though ratings have changed or what import they have? Absolutely. So in that time, which was really that around the time I started tasting at BTI, so that's a, that's an interesting year for a lot of reasons. It's also year my son was born. There were a lot less data points. I mean, there are a lot less people doing this kind of work. So I think just right now, the fact that it's been democratized, as you say, and there are crowdsourced review sites out there, and there's so much more opinion and information about these products, it's just amazing, really. And it's something we have to work into our business plan is to make sure that we're still relevant as a voice and are we providing a unique kind of perspective on things that people can use. Um, so in terms of, you know, that, that period of time, I, we were really the first 
competition for spirits here in the U.S. Um, so we sort of, and also for beer too, we started those programs in 1994. We started doing wine in 1981. We really used the methodology we built for wine and extended to beer. So our reviews and our competition, which is the World Beer Championships, looked a lot different to the, to the judging panels than other things like you know, the World GABF and, and other review and, and competition kind of formats. So there was us, you know, there was a few other people doing this, you know, uh, really, I think all about beer magazines start in 94 too. And we actually started licensing our content to them there. So there was very few kind of places. Jackson was looming large in terms of the authority in the space. Um, and there were a couple other writers too. But uh, in terms of actual ratings and reviews, it was, you know, very limited. And so our services were in high demand back then, and um, we were actually publishing books and, and doing a lot of other things too. So I think now the climate, you know, ratings, they, they have importance. Um, we're still in business. People still come to us for, for our rating services. So I, I know that, that that still has meaning. And I talk to people every day about how scores are still important in people's consciousness, you know, in terms of, I'm going to buy something and I'm going to take a chance because it has a high score. And I don't really know that much about it other than the package looks right. The price is obviously not prohibitive and it's got a good score. Click, I'm in. Um, so I know people use it and I know that it has meaning. I, I do think that there's some dilution. I think it's, there's some, you know, because there's so many data points now and so many different entities doing it that you have to kind of look with care to make sure that you're aligned with whoever the review source is in terms of uh, what they're putting out. You know, I, I'm also kind of, you know, we look at other people that are doing reviews and, and kind of plotting their data and see how it aligns with ours. And uh, I know that there's a lot of different methods out there. So, I mean, I would I would urge people to, to look at it critically just as they look at products critically, look at the critics in a critical manner. BTI does look to a certain extent at what's happening in Untapped and on other platforms where people are sort of sharing their thoughts and reviews. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, I'm connected to the community. Um, I, I try very hard to stay on top of that. I, I, as you mentioned I, earlier in the pre-show, we, I work with Chris Quinn um, on lots of different projects and participate in his podcast, which is always, for me, the chance to reconnect and see what's happening because it moves very quickly. And, you know, we do wine and spirits and RTDs and seltzers and everything else. So, you know, as a business, we have to kind of focus on where our services are needed and, and the demand is for them. So sometimes we don't always hear about everything that's happening in beer. So uh, actually I was checking out your podcast uh, earlier today and I was learning quite a bit from Jeff and a couple of the other people that you had, including Paul from, from Few Spirits. So that's, uh, you know, I'm always looking to stay in contact with that. And yes, and as an organization, we do look and see what other organizations are doing because, you know, uh, we license our content to different um, apps and retail solutions. And uh, there's a lot of different places that those people can go to to get their, their data. So in the course of those kind of discussions, we see what other people are doing and how their data compares to ours. For quite some time, I was a buyer for a beer bar and then for a restaurant group. Most part, you're buying from wholesalers. And the way that they sort of pitched product and how they were describing the quality changed quite a bit over the eight or so years. And the red thread through all of it was that it was moving away from a certain type 
type of rating. I wouldn't necessarily say BTI, but in terms of like wine and other ones, no more discussion of like wine spectator or anything of the sort. And in beer, things really shifted towards untapped. And there were reps that would literally come in and say, oh, this beer is scoring this much on untapped. And I think it's pretty well publicized that some distributors have made decisions of product based on untapped scores. Do you think that that's a good practice or how do you sort of square all of that? Well, I think it's it's certainly a, a window into consumer demand, um, you know, with any kind of crowdsourced thing that that is certainly the asset. I think that appeals to most people that it's really kind of consumer research in, a, in an app, basically, and you can make some decisions based on that. I, I would say that it decisions uh, from the buyers that we work with are kind of, they're looking at a variety of different sources. So it's not just all one. I would never encourage anyone to just look at one, one source uh, for, for everything. I don't, I don't necessarily think that exists for all alcohols. I mean, we try to be as close as we can to that standard. I hope people would definitely consider us when they're making their decision, but you know, I would always look professional review like, a, let's say, a Robert Parker, and then, like, check out something like Vivino as well, you know, in the wine world to see, like, kind of what's trending there. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of what I do uh, outside of the work here at BTI. When I'm looking at uh, data points, I'm looking, okay, let's see kind of what the people are saying. Let's see what some of the top critics are saying. Okay, let's if there's harmony between that, it's probably a good uh reason to, to get involved with a particular product based on those two review things. I think it, that is a very natural kind of ebb and flow cycle in terms of popularity. Like that's a shifting thing I've seen over 20 years. It, it went from, you know, beer writers to, you know, who write books to, to beer bloggers have the, have the, you know, the influence to, you know, crowdsourced apps and rating sites that they had a lot of influence and uh, I remember going on a press trip some years back. This was the series that um, Anheuser-Busch did. They did it to their hop farms, to their barley uh, farms and processing, and then finally uh, to their yeast production uh, facility in St. Louis. I remember that each year it started out, it was mostly kind of the established you know, writers for the magazines and so forth. And then we started seeing, oh, here's some bloggers in the second trip. By the third trip, it was probably about 50-50. Um, so, I mean, I think that, that that's just a cyclical thing, right? So that's people are marketing products and they're going to grab ratings and scores from whoever's higher usually is the, is the guiding principle for that if you're a salesperson trying to sell an account. But I think there there's definitely something to the fact that the crowdsource things are tapping into, pardon the pun, the 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 zeitgeist and what what's at least what's on people's thoughts and sort of what's emerging. I don't know if they're great barometers for the classic brands and for things that are not emerging. Um, you know that I would probably say they're not as good, um, but certainly for things that are new and representative of a, whatever new style, whether it's sour or hazy, whatever was the, the interesting kind of thing that people were really, really talking about. They're talking about on these kind of apps and there's certainly a pitch to be made to a buyer to say, hey, you should be, you know, in tune with what the market is, is doing. But I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, that's one method of buying. And I you know I know a lot of people have different criteria. They, they taste their own things and they only buy things that they taste. Some people rely on, you know, critics and, and so forth or crowdsourced apps entirely. So it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish with your program. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Gerald O'Kinnard in a moment. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra that I want to share. 
You can find tickets to Scorch Tundra present shows and festivals at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorch Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorch Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Gerald O'Kinnard. I want to latch on to something you were talking about earlier, and that was sort of the maker's intent and what role that plays into the assessment that you're making. And of course, there's like the audience for the assessment, too, that all sort of rolls together. Is it challenging to remove what you're reading about this product from your assessment and your sort of synthesis of what it is that you're sort of tasting? Oh, no, that's that's easy because we're tasting everything blind. I mean, I think part of it is really the methodology that you approach. So if, if we're setting up panels where the, the panel only knows the category, then really what's incumbent is to make sure that things are in the right category. And that that's a big challenge too, because we're a little different than other um, organizations that might use, use different standards. We we do use um, you know the TTB definitions of, of things for, for, for standards and categories. We use um, our own experience that we use when we're putting together the books. Um, so we're not strictly a BJCP house, um, but we do look at that and we do take that into consideration too. But we have our categories worked out. And really when someone's entering their product, we, we allow them a lot of latitude in which category because they may be within a style, but going for something else. And they want to see how it's received by a panel that thinks it's this category. So we kind of look at the product. Okay, you're in the, the porter category, but you're golden and you're clear and you know the srm is off but we kind of get what you're going for we're looking at it in terms of you know like how pleasurable the experience will it be how does it compare to the best examples of its type well it doesn't look like a porter but let's say it it tastes i'm I'm grabbing just a sample uh, a hypothetical out of the air but we we get these kind of situations all the time where we're presenting the freedom for the for the brewer to enter a product in a category, and then they're going to get the panel feedback based off of that, but they're also going to, from us at least, they're going to say, well, you might not have really achieved the goal of conforming to a category, but you made a great product, and here's what we would give you as a score for that, and here's the tasting that clearly defines kind of what we're seeing here and why it's still a great product, even though it might not be categorically correct. So that's um, that's that's really one of the things that that's the pointy end of things that we deal with, the the actual removal of bias. Um, you know, we have systems in place for that. Part of that is you know our methodology and how we do it. So people only know the categories in the flights. They're flighted by category in a progressive manner. All of their scores and notes are locked into our system before we reveal at the end of the exercise what the products were that they tasted, and then we give them their tasting notes and their data um, in a report, we email it to them so that they see what they thought about these products. And we list off, you know, what the brands are and who sent it in and the contact information. So if they want to create commercial connections with these people, they can do that. They have the tools to do that. So that that's the kind of the full circle of what we do on the panel. Um, and as far as, you know, looking at products, reviewing them, and then at the end saying, oh, okay, well, 
these these are the things and you know we're going to send the results off to the the participants in a little bit but in the meantime you've kind of got a head start to take a look at what you might be able to use for your programs in terms of purchases how have you sort of seen the categories we could take beer as an example how have you seen the sort of style categories shift or change and how do you sort of track and incorporate that into your uh, assessments Yes. So they definitely do change. You know, when we started out, it was the West Coast hoppy style IPA that was fascinating everyone and just sort of taking over the world, literally in terms of brewing. And, you know, when we did that, our reviews, we, we did the classic, okay, let's split it into American style IPA and English style IPA. And then we're, we're kind of done. And then w- what we did is we created a specialty category um, that was just sort of a catch catch all category for anything that would come through the transom that's like, sort of innovative, but doesn't, you know, or doesn't really fit into a particular style. We'd say, okay, this is specialty. So let's say we had a barrel-aged IPA and we would we would put it in there and say, okay, there's the barrel-aged IPA. It's coming in specialty. So the panel knows, oh, don't treat it just like an IPA. There's something special about it. Let's figure out what this is. And then over the years, if we saw enough of them, and I think Hazy was, and New England style was one of them, where we see enough commercial examples being sent into us, we're like, okay, let's pull it out of specialty and let's let's really define what we're seeing in the style and, and write that up and then have that so that people can reference that when they're sending us products. So yes, they, um, you know, and then it comes full circle, like with the World Beer Championships that we just finished a couple months ago, we had a New England style IPA that entered as an American style IPA. And that, that, was a, that was a bit of controversy in our production staff because we're like, well, do we, we can obviously see it's a hazy IPA by the way it's being branded and presented in the package. Do we move the category um, so that the panel will perceive it more as a IPA? And then we did some runs with, a, um, with our editorial staff and a couple of our, our key, key uh, beer advisors. And the conclusion was like, okay, you know, I think now it's sort of accepted as that's one of the American styles of IPA is the hazy thing. And we didn't have a problem categorically with that particular product. As a matter of fact, it won, wound up winning our, our competition, which was, was great that a hazy IPA could do that because um, sometimes those don't, those don't fare too well because, you know, everyone's making them these days and sometimes people are burned out on them and all these kind of things. But in this case, it was great. It was a perfect example of its type. It did really well. And it did really well in the American IPA category. So even within these categorical things, they can change and encompass things that might have been tangential to them. I'm curious about these sorts of like internal discussions that you were referring to about weighing whether this beer will stay in this category or move around. Can you go a little bit deeper into what those sorts of conversations may have looked like? Yeah. So what happens is we're, we're considering our audience. So we've got about a million people that follow us on tastings.com, which is our publication. So if we're putting something out there as a review and it's categorized um, as such and such, we want to make sure that let's take a nodding beer example, one that just happened today. So this was a gin. So we have the following categories for gin. We have barrel aged gin. We've got gin. We've got um, Geneva. And we've got flavor gin. So flavor gin is kind of this, this category we had to create in the in the early knots when people were creating like lime flavored tequila and pear flavored tequila, some of these brands you might remember. And so we said, okay, these are not really typical London dry or even the kind of these nouveau, more floral styles of gins that we were seeing like Hendrix. These are definitely flavored things. So the question is like when someone comes to us with 
a gin that has, let's say, watermelon and all these other kind of non-standard botanicals in the mix, is it a flavor gin or is it a gin? So they they might have entered it as a gin, but if it's if it tastes like sweet potatoes because it's a sweet potato infused gin, it really belongs in the flavor category. So sometimes we actually crack the sample and and, and taste, you know, do an editorial tasting and see what category does will the panel understand this best in is really the, at the end of the day so that they can assess it properly, give it a score that is, has some relevance to what the product is, and then communicate that clearly to the consumer that, hey, this is actually not just a standard gin. This is a flavored gin because they've chosen to use, you know, this melon or sweet potato or whatever the you know, thing might be that's really dominating the flavor profile. And that's a case-by-case basis. Like different producers around the world will have different tolerances for what they consider a standard flavor profile. Like if you talk about Estonian vodka, they traditionally use lots of herbs and spices, but they're very subtle and most people can't taste them they, as, as flavored, so to speak. They say, okay, this is more or less neutral, but there are some flavor essences. So does that a flavored thing? The producers would come to us and say, hey, you know, the TTB is making me enter this as a flavored vodka, but it's not flavored. We just use these things when we make the vodka, you know, so it's it's these very sui generis kind of situations. And you have to have an open mind to how people are traditionally creating them, uh, these products, creating them with innovation in mind and trying to find a line that you can walk that'll make sense to your audience. As to what this thing is. In the sort of assessment of off flavors or unwelcome flavors or flavors that don't necessarily meet the rubric, so to speak, but are actually in another context, maybe if it's the context in which you are viewing the beverage, it's actually welcomed and very enjoyable. How does that square with the rubric? Yeah, there, there's a lot of ways to answer that. I think one interesting thing that we've seen is we have seen products that are flawed for their style. I'm thinking particularly things that have acetic flaws uh, or infections that tend to lend those kind of flavors to to things and that are in a really interesting arc on their way to their death. You know, so we see those kind of things too. We know this is not going to last. This is not what necessarily what the producer intended, but it's really cool. And it's really interesting to have a you know, a, a sour porter that's that's coming through that's not supposed to be sour, but it's definitely like if you if you put it in the right category and put it in front of the right audience, they might they might like it because it's actually kind of good and interesting, but it's not the intent and it's not going to last. So we see examples of that. But in the in the larger uh, sense, I mean, we're looking for, as I said, we're looking for the best examples of the type every day. We're trying to see, okay, is anything that we we're assessing here really on that superlative scale? And if it's if it's not, what what's good about it? Is there anything good about it? On our scale, we have what's this 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 threshold, which is a standard quality uh, example, which could be you know it could be something like um, like a, maybe a Bud Light or something like this, which is perfectly you know, fine for what it is in the category might not be the most interesting thing in the world, but it's rock solid commercial, commercial example of something. And then things that are below there, like um, lower quality commercial example or not commercially acceptable. These are points in our scale. We're saying, okay, there's some flaws here. Uh, You know, maybe there's a little bit of skunk or oxidation or a hint of DMS, but it's not going to totally destroy the, the pleasurable experience of the beer. It's just sort of holding it back. It's keeping kind of that lower scoring area, but still could be recommended. And then there's flaws that that just 
prohibit, you know, really consumption <laughs> that are just so outrageous. You know, if you're getting into indole and some of these, you know, fecal things, I mean, it's just no one's going to tolerate that. Or if you have exploding infection, which, you know, sometimes I listen to a beer before I, I drink it to see, like, what am I getting into here? Okay, if I hear some snap, crackle, and pop, you know, I'm dealing with some infection. If I see a lot of foam, obviously the telltale signs. Um, and we see, obviously, that all the time. And those are things that we're like, okay, this is, this is not, there's no way to enjoy this product. It, it's, we're not going to recommend it. So that's part of our scale too. In terms of the recent sorts of discussions about convergence and specifically in the world of sort of like RTD, ready to drink cocktails made by liquor manufacturers or malt-based beverages, obviously using malt, but with the customers maybe seeing a brand that they typically associate with spirit in the context of making a flavored malt beverage, obviously there's excise tax reasons why companies choose to make one and not the other. How do you sort of go about clarifying that for the consumer because to me this is actually one of those opportunities that a professional taster like BTI or an official source of information so to speak can actually help to clarify beyond just the consumer looking up maybe where this thing is made if they care but BTI actually I think or firms that do the work in this way can offer a unique opportunity to give a little more in this sort of conversion space can you speak to this Absolutely. This is something that um, we've been working with for the last, I mean, ready to drink products really since the late nineties, but in particular in the last few years it was challenging first to kind of create the right lanes for these things. I mean, we have wine, beer, and spirits as kind of our kinds, we call them of alcohol and things roll up to that. So let's say a spirits based RTD will roll up to our spirits um, section in, in the website, um, a malt based um, RTD or hard seltzer would roll up to the beer section. So we, we were always following kind of the TTB definitions of where these things lie and people are entering them into the right competition basically uh, based on what they are because they know what their base alcohol is. But then we realized like two years ago that really consumers don't care. Like the convergence is here. People like look at something, you know, back in the knots when, when spirits brands were, were, were tempt, were trying to make like Zima like clones. There was, Stoli and Sky and all these, you know, uh, brands that were that were in the space that were creating these RTD things, and they had their phase, right? And so they disappeared, and now everybody's back, and the partnerships are are, are a little more interesting now, you know, in terms of like sourcing malt-based things because everyone's, um, you know, trying to avoid the taxes. But then some people are very strict, like, okay, no, we're spirit, we're spirits thing, and the real spirits in here, or you know, this is consistent with our our branding and who we are, and our identity as a distillery. And they'll pay a little bit more, obviously, and the excise tax is actually a lot more. It's on the order of 10 times, actually, in some states. You know, we realized as a, as a consumer resource that, yeah, we're keeping a lot of track of this stuff and we're, we're, we're putting in the right lane, but our user, it doesn't really care. So what we did is uh, two years ago, we created a CANS review, which is just basically anything in a single serve format. And that actually clarified a lot of things. And people were really on board with that because the suppliers were not interested in getting into the minutia about what the base alcohol is because they're, they're really competing with all the other RTDs of all sorts, wine spritzers and hard seltzers. They're, they're in the minds of the consumers. These are all kind of one thing. It's in a can. So we have adapted our system to kind of just look at these things in cans. Now they still drill up to the, 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 the fundamental wine, beer, and spirits, depending on what they're made from. 
But in terms of our editorial, we're, we're putting them together because that's really how they're together and how they're competing in the marketplace. And then we're referencing a lot of things like, okay, if you're coming at us with, let's say, a whiskey ready to drink product, and that's, that's part of your branding and your identity, but our panel is not tasting any whiskey character at all, that's not ideal, right? I mean, it, it could be anything. It could be malt-based. I mean, if you're going to put whiskey cocktail, we should get some essence of whiskey. So that's kind of informed our understanding of the benchmarks for what we're looking for. It, it's been an evolution, and I, I think it's actually been good to sort of let down the strictness of what the base alcohol is and just deal with the material in a more kind of um, hedonic manner, if you will, at the end of the day, because that's really how consumers are looking at it. I think that's fair. It's been really interesting to see where the strict guidelines and things, depending on whether you're following the TTB or standards specific to that type of beverage, ultimately the customers are the ones that are dragging us more than we're dragging them in a certain way. And so it's important to sort of acknowledge that they're the ones pulling the wagon in a certain way. Meeting them where they are is really important. And it's just sort of interesting to see how that buttresses with sensory work and with standards in some way. Yeah, because they're, they're really the, the, a large segment of the, the, the customer base right now. They're brand agnostic. They're base spirit agnostic. But they're, and some of them are quality agnostic. And that's, that's fine. They're, they're, they're drinking it for a lifestyle choice or maybe a low alcohol kind of ready to drink product for that kind of perceived health advantage. But for the people that are quality focused and, and want something that really tastes great and will give them a, a great tasting experience, I'm encouraged by the fact that that's where the market is trending towards towards that. In our reviews, we were we were finding many world class ready to drink products. We didn't expect that in in the can category, so that was a revelation to a lot of our panelists that you could have something in a single serve package that could rival full bottle or even a freshly made experience in, the, in terms of a ready-to-drink cocktail. There are things out there that are of that level. And then sort of concurrent with it trend-wise is, you know, the low to no alcohol and seeing all of these things that are non-alcoholic versions of spirits and cocktails and things and how that's that's coming on and coming on really strong. And uh, there, there's a lot of things that, um, that, that can be improved, certainly within that space. But there's some brands that are quite strong and, you know, that that did very well in our reviews. It is pretty impressive to see how far along these liquor substitutes or products that are meant to emulate that sensation have come. How do you sort of evaluate those? Yeah, so it's um, it's really important, again, categorically to make sure it's in the right place because there are these producers that are making non-alcoholic versions of, let's say, a, a standard alcohol type like a vodka or gin or whiskey or tequila. Even within that same producer, they might be making a spritzer or cocktail version of something. So we have to kind of like, are you emulating a base spirit or are you emulating a cocktail? Great. Now we can have some benchmarking and say, well, okay, how close does it come to tasting like a gin? So that's pretty straightforward exercise to do in terms of benchmarking. And then on the cocktail end, the exercise is, okay, we're comparing them to ready-to-drink cocktails that have alcohol that are, you know, and when we when we look at ready-to-drink cocktails with alcohol, we're looking at how do they compare with, you know, an actually made cocktail by a good bartender. So that by the transitive property, we're still judging these non-alcoholic cocktails by how they compare to a freshly made one. So I think that's that's actually for a trained, you know, sensory panelist 
That's not hard to do. We can, we can do that all day long. We can slice and dice. Okay, this works here. They didn't get the bitterness right. They didn't get the sweetness right. They didn't get this right. Or they excelled here with the flavor. This, I don't taste a base spirit. This doesn't taste natural. It tastes chemical. So we have some criteria from which to assess it and to benchmark it. And it works. I mean, you know, consistency is one of the big things that we pride ourselves on. And we've had a few years of seeing these types of things. And they are very consistent in their scoring. So we know that this method works. In closing here, I wanted to ask about generational differences a little bit. And obviously, the people that are in your panels have the type of objectivity that we talked about. But perhaps just anecdotally, do you notice sort of the differences in what panelists of different ages or generations pick up on or are particularly sensitive to or value? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, we have a wide range of demographics in our our panel pool. So we have people that have been here at the at BTI longer than me. And if I were to look at the, the way they assess things, they are generally coming from the distribution or production world where they have to make a lot of decisions about what to list or what to produce. And they have to make it very quickly. So they're, they're very fast and they're very cogent in their remarks. Maybe not as flowery, um, but very to the point and like, boom, boom, this is what it is. Da, 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 da. Whereas I think the younger generation, and this is sort of an evolution from the time I've been here, are much more, you know, verbose, let's put it this way, in terms of describing things. They're using uh, a lot of the kind of creative uh, metaphors and things, you know, reminds me of my grandmother's damp basement. And that's a good thing, right? Okay, good. So, I mean, we're seeing that kind of um, prose um, in some of the notes and, and some of the descriptors and feedback, which is great too. So I think that that's one divide that I see, but generally, generationally. I think that the, the, the cool thing about what we're doing is we are doing panels that have multiple people on them. Sometimes we're in these different generations and they each sort of learn from each other. And it's great to, to watch that sort of being passed down, that institutional knowledge as well as product specific knowledge. And uh, sometimes as the conversations after the tasting is done, when we actually see what's on the cart, that can lend itself to a lot of education between the two. And we get to see where everybody is at. I think the folks that we have, quote unquote, younger folks that we have are very interested in how they might be able to work with something and maybe um, perhaps a little more open minded to things that are outliers in that respect, because maybe they're, they're serving an audience that's kind of looking for new and different things. Um, so I, I think that's something I've observed is there's perhaps a little bit more openness to to that kind of innovation and, and these sort of outlier products that, that might have a fit in a, in a funkier program, for instance. Excellent. Well, Gerald, thank you so much for coming on Heavy Hops. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, it was great talking with you, Alexi. These are great questions and I really appreciate the time.